we begin tonight with the growing concern across this country after that massive cyber attack. Instead of seeing what's new in your inbox, a series of messages pop up telling you that your files have been encrypted and you won't be able to access them again unless you pay ransom. Experts say that these attacks are becoming more frequent and more lucrative for criminals with companies losing hundreds of billions of dollars from these attacks in just the past few years. We have new information this morning on two more cyber attacks targeting New York City's subway system and a ferry service for summer resorts in Massachusetts. We are learning right now that Uber is suffering a computer system hack. Federal officials can only do so much when private companies are targeted. The bad guys aren't going through the front door. They're going through the back door and getting in that way to deploy the malicious code. Welcome to The Lost Debate, a show for political eclectics. I'm Ravi Gupta. And I'm Ricky Schlott. So how's London, Ravi? <laughs> well, I, I texted you this yesterday. I went to see a play last night. And we covered trigger warnings recently. Mm-hmm. And this was quite a trigger warning in the lobby of this playhouse. This is a play called The Doctor. And this is what it said outside. It said, this production features themes of abortion, racism, sexism, bullying in the workplace, bereavement, Dementia, anti-Semitism, and suicide. Please speak to a member of staff for resources on support. I think that might be one of the most aggressive trigger warnings I've ever seen. Mm. And was it announced like verbally at all during the play or just just the sign out front? Nope. They did a cold opening. And it's weird because I think the the play was kind of transgressive in many ways. It was it was a bit startling because it's this place set in a hospital ward. And none of the characters' identities match up with who they are. So it could be a woman playing a guy. It could be a white person playing a black person and all that. And actually, the message of the play was kind of anti-identity politics. Yeah. So I find it really weird that that message was paired with this trigger warning. So at some point, I would love to interview this this writer because, by and large, I agreed with the message of the play. It was actually quite good. But this trigger warning was really strange, especially when paired with the message of it all. It might be the venue. I think sometimes it's the venue that decides that trigger warnings are necessary. But I I, I responded to your text of that picture asking if you asked know, for resources asked. from the staff. No. <laughs> I should have done it. You know, I try not to because, you know, just like you didn't call the, the NYU hotline, I try not to waste people's time on this kind of stuff in case there actually is some kind of legitimate concern as much as mm-hmm. I don't necessarily believe that that you need to be that aggressive but that was yesterday i did my classic british going to the theater thing tonight i'm going to see jason isbell the american country singer here so i I think i've had my fill of of british uh, arts at this point i think i'm 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 back to being an american now fair enough and are you going to be there for thanksgiving no i I fly back on saturday nice because you know they don't they don't celebrate it here so i gotta head back Mm -hmm. and and do that i also got to do thanksgiving because i i'm gonna be in costa rica for the third consecutive christmas and i think my mom would actually kick me out of the family at this point if i did another holiday in costa rica so i at least owe her thanksgiving fair enough well we have a few announcements We have no Lost Debate show next week because of Thanksgiving, but we will have a Citizen Stewart show. So if you want to follow some of the latest topics in education, we'll release that episode on Tuesday. We had a nice little voicemail from a listener who loves this show, but tuned into Citizen Stewart and was like, whoa, this is too woke for me. For that listener, try this episode out this week. We we took on anti-racism. I think I got Chris to be a little less woke this week. Mm. So you may like this episode, but obviously that's what the lost debate is for, Ricky. You come at me from the right and from the libertarian angle. Chris comes at me from the left. So pick your poison. 
Once again, we're reminding everyone to call us at our voicemail line, share your favorite segment of the show. We're going to do a best of episode coming up. We'd love to hear uh, why you listen, what brought you here. And so our phone number is 321-200-0570. So Ricky, this week on our show, we're going to talk about how the different forces on each side of the education wars fared in this past election. We're also going to talk about how young people might be dating their way to financial ruin. And we're actually going to look at the data, but also pull in one of our young staffers who's been out in the dating world and ask him some questions about some of his financial choices. We've also got an interview our producer did with Anatole Levin, who's a Ukraine expert who can distills down everything that's happening there. And there's some hopeful signs out there. Given that we're not going to have an episode next week. We go a little longer than usual here, but I promise it's worth it. Especially, you know, I really want you to stick around for this Ukraine interview because we haven't touched on that topic in a while. And so we wanted to catch everybody up on what you need to know right now. But first, Ricky, let's talk about ransomware and this huge and disturbing trend out there on the internet. Yeah, there's a new report out from the Financial Crimes Enforcement Network, which says that in 2021, there were $1.2 billion worth of ransomware payments made just through American banks alone, which is almost triple what it was in 2020, which was hailed to be like the year of ransomware since everyone was going online and online processing was so much more important to life than ever before. But this is a continued uptick. And essentially what happens in this process is ransomware gets into someone's computer or or somebody accesses a, a file that is compromised and it gets in and it encrypts your files, then people hold your data captive and say, if you pay us this, then we'll give it back to you. Or um, in sort of like a double kind of threat, uh, if you pay us this, we'll give it back to you. And if you pay us even more, we'll not publish your your personal or um, more compromising data publicly. And so there are individuals getting targeted. There are also corporations getting targeted increasingly. Also governmental entities, mostly on the local level, schools, healthcare providers. And so it's an enormous scale. It's getting worse and worse and worse. And I think it's an important time to talk about what's actually going on here. Yeah, and you know, most timely, there are a series of school districts, Jackson and Hillsdale counties in Michigan, that had to close school for a few days this week because of a yeah. ransomware attack. So this this stuff is affecting people in real life. It's not just affecting people <laughs> people through the internet. And you know, what you talked about is this so-called double extortion, which seems to be on the rise. It also seems that one of the big trends here is a movement from high volume ransomware attacks, which used to, you know, a few years ago used to be the dominant mode where these these actors would just send out a bunch of different ransomware attacks that were almost indiscriminate. Mm-hmm. But now it seems like they're being more targeted and their requests and ultimatums are, are very bespoke at this point. They essentially are starting to get into these entities and know exactly what their vulnerabilities are and are asking for very specific payments based on what they think people can pay and what they think people should be concerned about. Yeah, just to your point about schools, um, in 2021, 1,043 schools were targeted, and we still don't know all the details from these two school districts in Michigan that are closed, but um, that's hugely concerning, especially considering how much sensitive educational data is stored for schools, how much information, personal information for families. Um, the, the, the targeting of medical 
uh, companies as well and and healthcare providers hugely concerning if you if all of your personal files and data and, and your your medical records are compromised um, and there's one really interesting example within the kind of health industry that comes from Australia Medibank this um, health insurance company a major company down there they were attacked by ransomware and they decided not to pay they took their government's advice and now Australia is considering making it a law that it's illegal to pay for ransomware which or to pay to get your stuff your stuff back from people holding your files ransom and at first I was kind of suspicious of that because it seems unfair to me if you're the target and of course, you would want the right to be able to get your own stuff back if if your if your company is going to be compromised, if the trust of your consumers is going to be co- compromised, if your personal stuff is going to be compromised. But at the same time, I think if it's like a mass scale sort of situation where we say nobody in the country of Australia will be paying you if you take someone's files, then I, if I were a ransomware hacker, I would not be targeting Australians. And so I think it's an interesting um, kind of potential solution to this issue. Yeah, I'm 100% for this, what Australia is proposing. I know it's tough because between when such a policy is rolled out and when the ransomware uh, bad actors change their behavior, there are going to be victims who just can't pay and can't get their data back or have stuff released. But I think that for the greater good, we have to cross that threshold Mm -hmm. because uh, that is the only way to solve this because the technology is just going to get better and better and better. You know, some people are going to, you know, some people are going to institute best practices and mitigate their risks, but the the hackers are going to get better and better and better. And this will be a constant cat and mouse game. The only way to stop it is just to say no American is going to pay these. And it's kind of informally the policy in certain ways now, because the majority of these people are coming from countries that are targeted by the U.S. for sanctions, like Russia, for example, which seems to have an outsized portion of ransomware attacks, Mm -hmm. whether it's from organized crime or explicitly from the government. And especially in light of the Ukraine invasion, there are all kinds of sanctions on Russian entities and criminal enterprises. And so a lot of times it's actually illegal to to pay for ransomware to get your data back or to, on, you know, to, to prevent a release if it's a sanctioned actor. But sometimes you don't know it's a sanctioned actor because you don't, it's just a name, right? Yeah. And it might take time to know later on. But the second thing is we should basically assume that if somebody's asking you for a ransomware payment and they've done this attack on you, they are an international criminal enterprise. Wiring money to an international criminal enterprise, that sounds like the kind of thing that should be illegal for whatever reason you're doing it, right? It's like giving money to Al-Qaeda to release a hostage. That's the kind of thing that only the government should be engaged in and that individual actors shouldn't do. And I would argue the government shouldn't even be giving those payments. Mm, Yeah, I mean, I think it's, Right now at the scale that it is and the fact that it's still kind of isolated incidents, I I can very much sympathize with the people and the companies and the leaders and the individuals who have decided to pay to get things back, especially if you're a company and you have like people's sensitive data that's not yours. It's your customers. It's not even yours to say, oh, whatever, I'll just I'll just let that be compromised. Um, or, you know, it can be enormously disruptive on a societal level. Like in May of last year, we had the Colonial Pipeline um, ransomware shutdown, which went on for several days, affected 
um, consumers of gasoline on the East Coast. There was panic buying, widespread shortages. It was deemed a national security threat. Biden declared a state of emergency. And they ended up paying um, 75 Bitcoin, which is $4.4 million, because they didn't know the extent of how much was compromised. They didn't know how long it would take to um, fix that. And potentially people couldn't drive or get to work or commute. And so I think in the immediate short-term situation, I can completely be sensitive to the fact that somebody in that leadership position who is responsible for getting gasoline and like the very like getting engines running across a whole portion of the country would say it's not really $4.4 million is not worth the potential outsized impact that this could continue to have if it, if it goes on for longer. So I I'm, I'm sensitive to it. What's fascinating about that one is that the FBI was able to claw back most of the Bitcoin that was transferred yeah. in that scenario, which is really fascinating. I think they got 64 of the 75 Bitcoin that was paid mm-hmm. there and part and it's you know, this kind of dovetails with our discussion the other day bitcoin both the people who are critics of it and the proponents of it have argued that it's this decentralized currency where the government has very limited reach and you know, monitoring these transactions etc but there are a lot of sources in the fbi who argue the opposite whereas mm-hmm. uh, if I, if people are you know like el chapo you know having warehouses full of cash that's actually really hard to track Versus the Bitcoin because of the way that the ledgers work. And I'm not, I'm by no means an expert on any of this kind of stuff. But the FBI is claiming that at least the way that the ledgers work and that all transactions have to be tracked in some ways, that because of the way that the initial payment has to be made in Bitcoin, that starts a trail that the FBI is actually able to follow. And from all the quotes I've seen in this research, the FBI seems fairly confident in their ability to track cryptocurrency in these kinds of exchanges. And once again, I don't know exactly how it works, but they seem to be onto something. Yeah, one of the major ways that they end up cracking these cases is that these people who have these payments then need to convert them into usable currency. And so they end up not wanting to, they themselves go to a bank and transfer that over. And so they use other people to stand in as an intermediary. And oftentimes that will be a plant from from uh, intelligence services who is offering up that service. And if somebody takes them up on it, typically it's not for the most kosher reasons. If you need somebody else to go and uh, bail out your crypto and convert it. And so that's one of the ways that they are getting people. And it's funny, like oftentimes it is literally just guys in a room in some like random place that are terrorizing people. And it doesn't even seem like a totally big constructed international ring. Like there, I think there are totally different scales and it's not all that difficult to pull this off. And I think the increasing numbers just goes to show that it's, there's some, some small scale, some large scale, some international, but also a lot of domestic stuff going on too. Yeah. And it looks like if Australia passes this law, it'll give us a controlled experiment so we could see what happens. Like it does this actually, you know, does this actually prevent future uh, ransomware attacks on Australia. So I, yeah. I'm gonna I'm really interested to see what that data looks like. You know, I, I think as we close out, let me just read for our audience what this looks like in practice because some of these messages are kind of chilling. And you know, Lori, I hope most of our members of our audience never have to read a message like this. But this was a Missouri school district when uh, one when an administrator logged into their computer. This is what it said. It said, "Hi, company. Every byte 
on any types of your devices was encrypted. Don't try to use backups because uh, it were encrypted too. I'm not sure the, the English level of the person who wrote this. To get all your data back to us, contact blank. Also be aware that we downloaded files from your servers and in case of non-payment, we'll be forced to upload them on our website and if necessary, we'll sell them on the dark net. Check out our website. We just posted their new updates for our partners and then it has an FAQ. Question number one, how can I make sure you're not fooling me? Answer, you can send us two files. Not exactly sure what that means. Two, what do you do to get all your data back? Answer, don't restart the computer, don't move files and write us. And three, what to tell my boss? Answer, protect your system, amigo, all caps. So I'm pretty sure the person who wrote this is not a native English speaker, but there's a certain arrogance to this message now. Shout out to the Missouri School District. They actually had backed up all their data before this. And I, and from what I understand, they didn't comply with this ransomware attack. Yeah. Also, I would say that nothing about that sounded specific. Like it could have just been copied mm-hmm. and pasted for anybody, theoretically. So I think it's hard to even know if it's actually legitimately true that your stuff is, right. is compromised. I mean, it's, oh, that, yeah, that would be a horrific thing to see when you log into your computer. Yeah, I guess in some of that contact, the stuff that's blurred out, on which listeners can't see that this is blurred out, maybe they posted a couple of files to say, I got your files. But you know, you obviously it could be mass emails to different people just claiming that you've that you've seized their their computer files, mm-hmm. and some you know some person might not do their full di- diligence to just send the money, especially if you're asking for a small payment. But I think in closing, seems like there's a couple of things, obviously the government should be doing. I favor the more aggressive measures, but I do understand, as you're saying, like there are huge downsides to that and risks. But as a person, it seems like a couple of things you could do. One is back up your data, whether it's it's for your company, which companies seem more at risk than individuals here. But even as an individual, back up your data and, and put it somewhere not connected to the internet when you're not transferring the files. Two is don't do anything you're embarrassed by, uh, <laughs> whether in the computer or real life, but definitely on your computer. And if you do use encrypted programs, anything that you think is sensitive, use encrypted programs that live outside of the rest of your hard drive. That seems like my list, Ricky. Anything else you'd add to that? Yeah, I don't I don't know if there's too much you can do beyond that. But yeah, Signal is a decent app. That's all encrypted. And um, in terms of messaging services, if you feel the need to do that, Double factor authentication is always good. At least you get a warning if there's some sort of attempt. I would say do that for sure. But I'm certainly not a a cybersecurity expert. I'm in a lot of circles where people are crowing about their so-called results in these education elections in the midterm. Everything from governor's races, school board races, statewide superintendent races, ballot measures on education, and people who are pro-union seem to be thinking like, hey, this is a great election for Democrats and pro-labor uh, union, education union forces, and pro, you know, people who are pro-increasing you know, increasing funding for education. And then on the other side, the sort of school choice advocates and so-called parents' rights advocates are also saying they've won. And as Mike Antonucci in the 74 wrote, 2022 elections are over and the advocates on both sides of the education wars are cherry picking results to bolster their agenda. Unions and right leaning groups tout ballot box wins, ignoring places where results didn't go according to plan. Ricky, this seems like a moment of extreme motivated reasoning, which is a term that just refers to people having what they want to believe. Like, so in my case, I'm an advocate of school choice and people like me just hunting and pecking for data that 
shows that school choice proponents won while ignoring countervailing evidence. Yeah, I mean, I would say going through this data as someone who is also pro-school choice, I don't think there's any cohesive national narrative in the way that there have been in previous election cycles. Um, I mean, you can I think you can separate out the school board elections. Obviously, that's like a basically single issue situation. And that's a lot more clean cut. But there's a lot of um, kind of grasping at, well, this governor candidate or Senate candidate is pro school choice and they won, which means school choice won, which I don't really think is a one to one. Um, By and large, I, I, I think it just kind of shakes out randomly depending on the local politics. It doesn't feel like this was the singular issue that was pulling people across the finish line in a Yunkin sense. I mean, certainly that's not to say that a Republican coming out and saying they're against school choice wouldn't have hurt them considerably. I think that would have been the case, but um, it doesn't seem to have had the same degree of sway. However, um, if you look at the polling from Pew, 64% of voters said that education was a very important motivation in their um, the way that they cast their ballot, which was only behind economic issues and protecting the democracy uh, in general. That was 66% of Democrats and 60% of Republicans. So it's bipartisan. It's hard to know, you know, Democrats might say education was important because they want to increase public school funding and Republicans because they want to increase school choice. And so I think it's definitely less clear cut. I think 2020 was a hot button time where everyone had their kids inside. They said, oh, I didn't really ever think about what's going on behind closed doors. And now I want to take ownership of it. My kids are being failed by ongoing school closures. And so definitely seems to be a mixed bag here from my read. But yeah, yeah. I mean, DeSantis is sort of the person that people are saying, here's the the school choice model of somebody who had a resounding victory. I wouldn't say it's completely down to that. But DeSantis's opponent, Chris, ran with a union leader in Miami-Dade County, which uh, DeSantis took pretty resoundingly, which I think would be the best data point in favor of the fact that this was an important issue. On this DeSantis question, Last week when I talked to Carlos Curbelo, who's the former congressman, Republican congressman from Miami, who's also the co-host of the Pulsoe Pendulo podcast for Lost Debate, Carlos had some interesting things to say about DeSantis and how school choice has been both important to his political past, but also his his present and future. A lot of people think that in 2018, the only reason DeSantis won, and it was a very small margin, some 30,000 votes, is because of the education and specifically the school choice issue. So this is a huge uh, issue in Florida and there's a long legacy, right? Jeb Bush started this movement over 20 years ago and now we're at a point where school choice is a true reality in Florida. I mean, Florida families have uh, you know more choices than any other state in the country. Uh, the dollars are actually starting to follow the student, which is something that people have talked about as something that would be nice for a long time, but now it's happening. Miami-Dade County, fourth largest school district in the country, has one of the um, healthiest charter environments in the country. That can help explain why not just DeSantis winning statewide, which there are a lot of explanations for, but why you know, he won Miami-Dade, which is extremely rare for Republicans. So that definitely could add some support for the idea that that particular outcome had something to do with education. I would say that DeSantis also is one of those candidates who talks more about education, whether it's the, you know, what he calls parental rights and education bill, what what, uh, opponents call the don't say gay bill. You can go on all this kind of stuff that he's 
he's done in education mm-hmm. from the culture war stuff to the, I would say the less hot stuff, like the way he reformed standardized testing, which is something that we've talked about. But let me just give you a couple of data points that just go all over the place when it comes to this. So if you're a person who's yeah. a believer in school choice or other really classically conservative ideas in education, you could point to Kevin Stitt in Oklahoma or Abbott in Texas or Bill Lee in Tennessee or, or Joe Lombardo flipping Nevada and be like, all right, that's evidence for my cause. But if you're on the other side, you'll be like, well, Katie Hobbs flipped Arizona. Arizona is one of the more aggressive school choice states. And then the NEA, the, the National Teachers Union, released a press release that pointed to Tony Evers in Wisconsin, Gretchen Whitmer in Michigan, Laura Kelly in Kansas, Grisham, Mills, Ned Lamont, Gavin Newsom, you can go down the list, right? You, you, you can create your list of Democrats. Yeah. You can create your list of Republicans. Now, there was this Wall Street Journal article from Corey DeAngelis, a, a big school choice proponent, where he said, well, if you get into the fine details, there were some Democrats who flipped on school choice issues to become more pro-school choice, like J.B. Pritzker in Illinois and Shapiro in Pennsylvania, who supported some version of vouchers. There's also Jared Polis, who's very pro-school choice, who's the Colorado governor for Democrats. And then and Hochul, in a debate, mentioned that she supports lifting the charter school cap in New York, which has been a huge issue of controversy locally. And so that was, to me, surprising to hear her take that stance as well. Yeah, this is kind of, if people pay attention in New York school politics, this is the Cuomo tradition of giving charter school supporters like me what we want while also selling out to the unions. And what Cuomo was smart Mm -hmm. about, very cynically, was, hey, as long as we have money coming in for a growing economy, I'm going to keep giving the unions what they want without without actually pitting them against the charter school proponents. At some point, that calculus may run out, but she definitely seems to be continuing on that trend. But yeah. but there are some other like more local issues that came into play. There were these states that had passed uh, voucher laws, like New Hampshire and West Virginia, that had voters reelect the leaders that were responsible for those laws, basically keeping those intact. But then there are other cases like Arizona where they passed voucher laws where they at least flipped some portion of the leadership, at least in Arizona, it's the the governor. So, you know, there's a mixed bag there, but I would say by and large, like these more Mm -hmm. aggressive voucher laws are going to stay in place. There were also a lot of moves to approve different versions of savings accounts for education purposes. West Virginia rolled out their HOPE scholarships, which helps families um, save up for school costs and related financial costs. What does that look like for families? What does that exactly mean? Yeah, those are what I'm calling vouchers because they're basically the same mechanism as a voucher like in this case the hope scholarship fund in west virginia is an education savings account they call it that but essentially it's state funds for education outside Mm -hmm. of the traditional system in some cases around this traditional school system so it's forty six hundred dollars and this can include tuition and fees for a private school that's why i call it a voucher non-public online programs which are very popular with homeschooling families alternative education programs uh, services provided by a public school that they need extra money for so extracurriculars individual courses tutoring therapies transportation fees And the only limitation they have in West Virginia is that you have to have been enrolled in a public school for at least 45 days prior to applying, which applies to 93% of students in West Virginia. There's some version of these laws in Arizona, Florida, Mississippi, North Carolina, Tennessee, 
Indiana and New Hampshire. And so these are these are popular with certain kinds of families, especially homeschooling families. It can lead to things like micro schools, hybrid homeschools, and just obviously, you know, proliferation of low cost private schools. Because obviously, forty six hundred dollars isn't going to get you Mm -hmm. into like Exeter or whatever, but it's it's enough to support a very cheap option or to subsidize a cheaper option. Yeah. I would say looking at this from the zoomed out level, I'm actually with DeAngelis and his take overall where he said skeptics have noticed or noted in these pages that Democrats flipped on school choice for political expediency. Does that matter? After Tuesday night, it's clear for both parties it is now becoming politically profitable to support education reform. And I think that's I think that's true. Like after 2020, I think some lessons were learned where there was clearly an election cycle where education was very, very important. If you had been on the side of school closures and explicitly against like parents having a part in their children's education or explicitly against charter schools, you might have suffered in the polls as a result. And so the fact that it's not as central of an issue this time around might mean that there was actually just like a kind of wake up correction um, among people who might have been complacent in those policies. And so I would say by and large, it doesn't like I, I share this idea that if this if people are if Democrats are being more moderate on this, like more partisan bipartisanship is a good thing. And I don't really care what the, the reason is. I think that it's probably less important in 2022 because some very egregious things happened in 2020 that we were responding to. So, yeah, it, I'm, I, I think this is heartening to see more bipartisanship, a couple Democratic governors coming out and saying they're in favor of um, different varieties of school choice in Pennsylvania and in Illinois. And so um, I think it's I think it's progress and a move forward. Yeah. The the mark that somebody is changing their position for political expediency. I'm like, who? That's all politicians. That's 99 percent of politicians I've ever met most of their politics yeah. is because of the pressures that they have. <laughs> like, so I'm, I'm not too But I think it's a that. totally new pressure between 2020 and 2022. For sure. Hasn't really been felt before. And it, and it dulled the effect that education had on the election because people did moderate in response. Yeah. At least, in t- at least we haven't seen it since the sort of early days of Obama when it was more in vogue for Democrats to be pro school choice. And that lasted for a little while, not mm-hmm. long enough. If you ask me a couple other quick hits here, the there's the school board situation. And I would say here, and this is like the performance of, the 1776 pack moms for liberty there's a lot of competing data out here right now usa today had an article the day after the election just about their performance essentially saying it was a mixed bag and there's at least a claim out there that 1776 project for example is not releasing all their data on how they've done yet the same could possibly could be true of moms for liberty so what I what I would say about the performance of those packs, these are the so-called parental rights packs, more conservative packs, is it's unclear yet. I wouldn't say they won or lost yet. I think it's unclear how they did because we both have to assess how they did, but also who they lost to. You know, what I said to, to Chris mm-hmm. Stewart on our podcast was they could have lost to even more conservative candidates. We have no idea. So we got to look at how they did. Also, we should do a quick run through of some of these ballot measures really quickly before moving on. California passed Proposition 28, which aims to pump $800 million into K-12 arts and music programs. This sounds great, but I, I think a lot of critics point out that this is what they call ballot box budgeting, which essentially tells schools what percentage of a certain amount of money they have to spend on what, which sounds great, like more money for the arts. 
But this stuff is really onerous on school districts. I'm a big fan of sending money down to school districts and letting them figure out how to spend it as opposed to, you know, at a state or national level dictating exactly how they spend it. Uh, Massachusetts Mm -hmm. passed uh, a state tax that, among other things, supports more money for public school construction. We talked about New Mexico on pre-K expansion. Colorado, very underreported, had the Healthy Schools Meals for All program, which would fully reimburse districts for offering students free breakfast and lunch. And it would increase pay for school nutrition staff and offer training and equipment to make meals from scratch which I think is cool. Uh, The initiative, though, has a funding mechanism. It it would cap income tax deductions for those making $300,000 or more. Didn't seem like they faced a lot of opposition to that measure. Mm -hmm. So those are just some of the things that happen around the country. Yeah, I think it's totally a a mixed bag on the national level. Um, And certainly the narrative is not as clean cut. Shall we talk about dating a little bit? So the background here is we have a producer of the show named Michael Hendricks. You'll be hearing from him later, but he is off this week. What you'll be hearing from him is an interview he conducted right before he went out. And, you know, he's kind of the grown up in the room here. And given that he's away, we figured we would do a segment for us. This is a segment that I think Michael probably would have stopped. (laughs) But we have this this wonderful staff member named Joe Garvey that we're going to welcome on. He, He helps us with research support. Uh, But Joe is a young man in the dating scene in New York City, and so we figured we'd welcome him on for this segment. Joe, welcome to the podcast. How's it going, guys? Thanks for having me. Well, Ricky, given that you guys are in your early 20s, I'm going to let you you guys set the stage for this because I... I have very little offer at this point, but I have a lot of questions. Okay. So there's um, a new poll out that has demonstrated that dating in the age of inflation is causing debt. Uh, 19% of people say that they're going on fewer dates now. And 22% of millennials and 19% of Gen Z say that they're in debt in part because of their dating habits. 77% of singles say it would be easier to date uh, if they had more money. And so I think there's an interesting financial struggle that has very much been clarified by the inflation issue. And people, I could not believe this statistic, but that a considerable amount of young people are literally in debt because of their their dating practices. And Joe, I can, and we'll just warn our audience, we know that somebody's beaming in from New York City here because we could hear the sirens in the background. I imagine those are coming from you, right? Yes, they are. Um <laughs> Someone is inconveniently having an emergency. Yeah, that's that's selfish of them. Well, Joe, give it give it to us. Tell us about your experience financing your dates recently. Yes, yeah, so I am a victim of this crisis. <laughs> I've I've been seeing this girl for the past few weeks. Is she a woman? Would she want to be called a girl? She's a woman. She's a woman. Does she know about this yeah. podcast <laughs> happening? No, she doesn't. So we're gonna keep this on the DL. Okay. So I've been seeing her for the past few weeks have enjoyed our time together the problem is we've really only been on two and a half dates and wait a minute what's the half well the half was a couple drinks which i don't consider a full date i think a meal constitutes a date but we'll say two and a half maybe three if you're rounding up and i did a calculation the other day and found out that i spent almost two percent of my annual take-home salary on our dates already, <laughs> which is extremely disturbing. Now, I'm not in debt yet, but I am certainly on the verge. Which, which means if I'm doing math, if, if Joe, if you do 100 dates this year, you will be broke. Oh, yeah. Uh, forget about it. Based on the math. I'm going to need to be bankrolled by someone. 
And you, oh yeah, don't I don't count on it, buddy. Wait, well, wait. The audience doesn't know you. How old are you? I'm 24. Now, what they also don't know is you look at least 40 years old. <laughs> so, does that become? Is that an issue for these dates? Like, do people think because you look older that you have more money? Yeah, that's the thing. So the Rogaine is not working yet. I still have a receding hairline. And I don't even have the money for a hair transplant. So I think they assume I have some money yeah. uh, when in actuality I am on the verge of going back home to live with my parents. Well, let me let me, uh, let me me try to describe you because this is a podcast to our audience, which is you have both the personality and the look of a younger version of the old man from Up. <laughs> is that fair to say? Yeah, that's a fair assessment, sure. Yeah, which I think will work for you, because who's not looking for that guy? That's probably the best fictional relationship of all time. Yeah, yeah, no, I uh, I appreciate the comparison. You know, I think at this point, I'm either going to stop dating altogether. Mm. I don't have the self-confidence to split the bill. Or I just go on dates with people who it would be awkward for them not to pay, let's say, like a Tiffany Trump, someone where... They come from extreme wealth, and I just have to let them pay. Well, Ricky, what's what's the etiquette these days on guys asking to split the bill? Is it is that a faux pas, or are we in the age of feminism where we should be expected to split things? I don't know. Well, I get a lot of flack for not being as feminist as people think I should be, and so I'll be continuing on that pattern here. But I would I have never been asked to split a bill, and I I I offer. But I've never been asked. I think that might raise eyebrows. I'm not sure. It depends on how far along you are. I don't I don't think in the beginning that's not a good move. But if you're a few dates in, I think that's appropriate. And if a girl doesn't start offering, then I, I think that's a faux pas as well. Right. But um, I was surprised with these statistics that the average dater is spending $91 per date, women $81, and men $104, which is yeah. closer than I thought it would be. I thought it would be uh, a higher percentage of men. But, you know, I I would say I it might raise my eyebrows if, if it, I was asked on the first date. That's my stance on that. I'm probably responsible for a lot of dating debt in New York, to be honest, just other people's. Well, well, Joe, given that I'm almost 40 and had spent a lot of my life dating in New York City, I have a couple pointers for you here. And this could be helpful to the audience, I hope. Yeah, I, I made... I had you watch this clip from the movie Half-Baked from 1998 in which Dave Chappelle took the character Mary Jane out on a date. And I think this is a perfect guide because essentially what happens in this date is Chappelle has no money because he was financing his his marijuana business in the movie. So he essentially had like five bucks. And so he did a really smart thing. Do you remember what he did to start this date? Yeah, less expensive dates walking around. Yeah, he said, let's go for a walk, right? You can also cook for people. I think yeah, that's but the nice. cooking is a little creepy though if it's a cook. first date because you're like creepy come for to a my first apartment. date. No, it's creepy for yeah. a first date, but I think you know that's a better. You have to figure out how to cook. You can scramble some eggs or something. Yeah, I mean, listen, I like public gardens. I like parks. I like taking walks. I think mm -hmm. ultimately that's the solution here. Central yeah, Park. Let me give you a couple of museums? ideas. Yeah, I was the Met. Yeah, the Staten Island Ferry. By the way, totally free. And you can go across, you see the Statue of Liberty come back. And if you get on the other side, there's a nice little pizzeria, not expensive. It's also Staten Island. You could do workout classes with people, which is a great, maybe second date, not a good first date. Yeah, and I don't know. the great thing about workout classes. Second date I've, workout I've, class? Mm. I've done this before. And I, I think the, the cool thing about workout classes is you have a great excuse for why they have to pay their half because they have to sign the waivers and all that. And you'd be like, look, I can't, oh, I can't sign you up, right? You could do coffee dates, which also is, is healthier for you. 
And also if the date goes well, it could last longer and also could be tied to the walking around thing. You know, my mom suggested I bring a date over and then she'll cook for us. But that you have to take her up to to Pelham. Yeah. In that case, yeah, I'd have to pay tough for sell. Metro North, which isn't cheap either. Yeah, that's a tough sell. That's more like a fifth date. I would say yeah. more than a fifth date. That's that's down the line, I think. All right. Well, Joe, if listeners, you have our voicemail now. If you want to hear more from Joe about his dating life, uh, just let us know. And it's really important <laughs> to me as Michael comes back from his time off that he hears from our audience that you loved this segment. So please fill up our voicemail box telling us how much more you want to know about Joe and his life and, and this uh, special somebody, this, this girl slash woman in his life. Thank you guys. <laughs> all right, Ricky, is that all we got to say on this subject? I think it is. Yeah. Poor Joe, the poor girl, she's going to find that. <laughs> um, but I think we should turn now and give Michael his due. He conducted an excellent interview um, with Anatole Levin, who he will introduce you to um, in this segment. But also I think it's important just before we get there to note that Two people in Poland died after a missile struck across the border on Tuesday. And there is an ongoing debate over whether or not it was Russian in origin. Uh, NATO weighed in, Biden weighed in, and there is an investigation that is still pending on where that exactly came from. But um, now it's it's cross borders and people have died in Poland as well. So I think that's an important update to preface this with. Joining me now is Anatole Levin. He's the director of the Eurasia program at the Quincy Institute for Responsible Statecraft and also the author of Ukraine and Russia, A Fraternal Rivalry. So Anatole, first off, thanks so much for joining us today. Sure, glad to. I want to start with, with more of the basics here, just to set the stage for those listeners of ours who aren't following the ebbs and flows of this conflict on a daily basis, um, which I, I think it's fair to say are a great many Americans at this point. We can wave our finger at that and, and think that that's a bad thing, but that, I think that is a, more and more a, a fact. Um, I, what most people are broadly aware of is that Ukraine is having some success with their counteroffensive, and they are in a generally stronger position now than they have been for many months, arguably at any point since this war first began. So if you will forgive this kind of boiled down question here to, to start with, um, could Ukraine credibly be described as winning this war now? Oh, absolutely. Uh, I mean, if you look at the the intentions with or the goals with which Putin began the war. I mean, firstly, he hoped uh, actually to capture Kiev, to overthrow the Ukrainian government or subjugate it, uh, and to turn the whole of Ukraine back into a Russian client state. Now, that failed completely. Um, and in uh, in April, the Russian forces were withdrawn from around Kiev. Then he sort of fell back on plan B, which was to conquer very large areas of eastern and southern Ukraine. Well, all that Russia managed to take and keep uh, has been part of the Donbass. He hasn't even, you know, uh, captured the whole of that. Uh, and a slice of Ukrainian territory linking the Donbass and Russia to, to Crimea. But uh, of um, the two new provinces that Russia occupied, uh, Kherson, uh, and Zaporozhye, and which Putin illegally annexed two months ago. Uh, now, I mean, they never captured the city of Zaporozhye, and now they've 
withdrawn from the city of Kherson. So they don't even, you know, occupy the capitals of those of those provinces. So yes, um, I mean, Ukraine has managed to keep um, 90% of its territory, uh, almost. But I think, you know, much more important is is the fact, and, and this is, you know, a, a, a complete reversal, not, not just of, you know, Putin's plans at the start of the war, but of the past 400 years, which is that whatever now happens, um, the vast majority of Ukraine will be fully independent of Russia uh, and will move towards the West. I mean, clearly, given the strength of Ukrainian resistance, the strength of Ukrainian nationalism, uh, it's not just, I mean, Western support has been, of course, very important, but um, it's only been part of the explanation. It, it just is not uh, believable anymore that, you know, Russia can subjugate the whole of Ukraine and turn it into a client state. So this is a, you know, a tremendous historical turnaround, which I think is is perhaps not sufficiently recognized. Right. As part of your answer there, you you mentioned Hassan, which of course is is the reason I, I reached out today. Um, I, I, I want to drill down on that city, which for those who don't, it's a, a key southern city that that Russian forces recently fled, and I, I think it, it bears underlining what you mentioned is that this was one of very few meaningful gains that that Russia had had managed to make since its invasion in February, and what may be more important now, and I want to get your thoughts on this is that city's proximity to Crimea. I know it's been the stated intentions of, of some Ukrainian officials, but is that um, a, a distinct possibility at this stage or, or is that more, is that aspirational? Well, I think that the Ukrainians may well try, uh, but of course, um, a key reason why Russia withdrew from Kherson city uh, across the Dnieper River uh, is so as to concentrate their, their forces in a stronger defensive position uh, to guard Crimea. So I think the Ukrainians would still have a, a, a much tougher fight because Kherson city was isolated on the, the western side of the Dnieper. And the Ukrainians, using high-precision American artillery, were able to cut the, the bridges. So the Russian force there was increasingly isolated and very hard to, to supply. That will not be true on the eastern bank of the Dnieper. The other question, of course, is whether uh, America might now step in uh, to rein in the Ukrainians, because there have been indications uh, that uh, there was a piece in an Italian paper, um, La Repubblica, uh, that once Kherson City falls, there are people in the Biden administration who would say, okay, you know, Ukraine has got the great majority of what it needs. Now that Ukraine you know, is in so much stronger a defensive position, perhaps this will be a moment when uh, the Biden administration will say, okay, now it's time to talk and aim at a, a ceasefire. Because there have been also very strong indications, and I've heard them myself from people in Moscow, that if there is a, a, ser a serious Ukrainian threat to recapture Crimea and the naval base of Sevastopol, then Russia might 
use nuclear weapons in some form, either tactical nuclear weapons on the ground uh, or a, um, a, an electromagnetic pulse, uh, which would not kill or destroy people on the ground, but it would knock out Ukrainian communications and satellites. Uh, and so, you know, do a tremendous damage to the Ukrainian war effort. That Both of those moves would, of course, be horribly dangerous and risk massive Western retaliation. So there's a, a, a lot to be said for not going there. Yeah, I, I was I was I'm just, I was planning on on asking you that a little later, but let's let's skip ahead because I think this is this is a, a key question here. Um, what you're laying out is an entirely conceivable scenario wherein a, a newly emboldened Ukraine seeks to reclaim not only what it had lost since February, but what it has lost over the last decade, um, in, including prominently Crimea, and Russia in turn could seek to defend Crimea with you know, weapons of last resort, which we were just talking about. We know what these are. Um, luckily for, for all of us, uh, we have not seen these deployed for, for a long time now. But I, I think while everyone can theoretically appreciate the, the danger of that threat, I'm, I'm not sure everyone does appreciate the severity of that risk in this moment. So I let me just ask you straight out, what are the odds that Russia would go there to prevent the loss of Crimea if that were, were something that that is, is seriously contested in the near future? Well, I mean, all, all I can say is that uh, a very large number of Russians I've talked to, you know, including people who are by no means favorable to the Putin regime um, and even who consider themselves liberals in some cases, have said that Russia should do this. And a couple of people have compared it to Hawaii and Pearl Harbor. They've said that, you know, if there was a threat from any outside force, uh, to capture Hawaii and take Pearl Harbor, then America would would use nuclear weapons, and so should we. The the thing is, you see, Crimea for Russians does come into a, a, a rather different category, as I wrote twenty three years ago. Uh, from the rest of Ukraine, it, it was part of Russia until nineteen fifty four, when the Soviet government transferred it to, to Ukraine, and the port of Sevastopol has tremendous both strategic significance. It is, you know, Russia's only naval port on the Black Sea. It's critical to the whole Russian position in the Mediterranean. But it also has tremendous emotional significance for Russians. So, um, and also, of course, you know, it, it has been in practice under Russia since 2014. And most observers said that, quite unlike these so-called referenda in, in Kherson and Zaporozhye. But uh, in Crimea, the referendum that Russia held on joining uh, Russia eight years ago was probably did, did reflect the will of a majority of the population of Crimea, uh, which is majority Russian and you know, was always very pro-Russian. So, yeah, I mean, Crimea for Russians is in a, a different category. And I think that the danger of escalation... Uh, to some some kind of nuclear use would be very high if the Ukrainians looked as if they they were in a position to to, to um, attack Crimea. Yeah, it it certainly seems to me that 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 would really mark a it's a significant shift 
in in this conflict, mainly not only for the conflict between these two countries, but also as pertains to the, the world, the international community, because it goes without saying that averting nuclear conflict is a is a, a pretty good incentive for for anyone and everyone to follow, and you know the us here in the U.S. very much included. It just that question happens to ask, I think, some particularly interesting questions of the U.S. and their role in this conflict. You you noted, you know, U.S. officials working behind the scenes potentially to try and dissuade further Ukrainian aggression and kind of tamp down um, further war aims. And you know, I've seen all these reports about Jake Sullivan trying to preempt a nuclear breakout here, which we can all agree is is by no means a good thing. So I, the, the question that leaves me with is, how should Americans look at the role the US has to play in all of this now that the, the this conflict is changing shape? Well, I mean, I think the first thing to recognize is that, um, you know, once again, Ukraine has won 90% of what it needs in this war. It has secured its independence. The second thing is that uh, Ukraine now does have a a real chance, which it never had before, of joining the European Union because of the sympathy generated by this war. Um, But that cannot even begin to happen. You know, the necessary reforms can't begin to happen as long as the war goes on, because Ukraine now has a heavily militarized economy. Uh, It has I mean, understandably, I'm not blaming the Ukrainian government since they are at war, but, you know, pretty heavy levels of domestic repression, it must be said. Opposite, most opposition parties are banned. Uh, and so it's necessary to, to end the war, um, or at least end the fighting for Ukraine, you know, to be able to progress towards the West. But I think the final thing to note is that, um, look, if, if you go back in 35 years and ask the absolutely overwhelming majority of Americans, possibly even the the majority of Americans in the American security elites who Crimea and Sevastopol belong to, they they would have said, well, Russia, it's Russian, isn't it? And would have been quite surprised if you'd been told uh, that uh, they were Ukrainian and would have been, to be honest, I think, you know, this is what comes uh, of my now being you know, older and remembering those days. But I really do think that if in the 1980s you had suggested to any American that America should risk nuclear war in order to take Sevastopol away from Russia, you know, even some of the very hardest line Americans would have said, you're, you're crazy. This is just, it's not worth it. And, you know, Russian... Russia has held Crimea since 2014. Uh, it hasn't actually done you know, anybody any harm because in practice, strategically, Russia held it before 2014. So, you know, what, what's the difference? So I think it's important that we, you know, we found our policies on realities, you know, realities on the ground, but also realities of uh, well, um, not just American interest, but for God's sake, I mean, the interest of humanity and not get, you know, too tied up with the, um, the, the, the rhetoric and the emotions of the, of the moment. Yeah, I, I think you are speaking to, at, at points in what you were just saying, um, a, 
it's not a secret to you or anyone that a certain segment of of this country will always have a certain isolationist bent to it. I think you hear fairly often these days. It was a midterm issue since we're talking about those elections so much um, right now. Why is it that we're sending money to a foreign conflict when we have you know glaring problem X, Y, or Z right here at home? That that was some that was a line you hear trotted out quite a lot. And you know, while I think there are certain gaps in that line of thinking, I, I don't want to totally dismiss the question either that a lot of everyday people would understandably have. So why is it in America's interest to support the Ukrainian war effort at this stage? And, and what form and extent should that take, especially given everything that we were just talking about in terms of the nuclear threat? Because there are certain nuances to Support is one thing. What does that support look like and where does it stop is another. Well, I mean, I, I, I wouldn't say that most of the people who are urging this can fairly describe, be described as you know, isolationists. Some of them are undoubtedly in the, in the Trump camp. But after all, you know, the people who are urging a ceasefire in Ukraine and um, you know, not risking nuclear war over Crimea, I'm not suggesting that America should withdraw from Europe, should leave NATO, should, you know, should, should uh, abolish the American presence in, in Europe. Um, no, I mean, it, it, this is a, you know, a, a limited tactical, if you will, uh, issue. And I mean, I think that for a whole set of reasons, America and the West were absolutely right to support Ukraine against the Russian invasion. Uh, I have always said that very clearly. We were right to arm Ukraine, right to give it economic aid, and absolutely right to you know, reject Russia's uh, illegal annexations. Uh, but um, as I say, we have now achieved, the Ukrainians have achieved the overwhelming majority of their goals. And so the question is now not between, you know, victory and and defeat for for Ukraine. It's certainly not about the existence of Ukraine anymore. It is only about the extent of Ukrainian victory and whether, you know, we are aiming at total victory uh, or at a a, a more limited victory, which to a great extent the Ukrainians with our help have already achieved. I do think that if you cast it in those terms, it does make the whole picture look, you know, rather different. After all, you know, America has accepted compromises in wars before. Um, you know, the Korean War ended in a stalemate pretty much along the lines where it started. Vietnam was a compromise which ended then in total failure thereafter, but at least America aimed at a compromise. And of course, the first Gulf War did not end with the overthrow of Saddam Hussein because um, the first Bush administration or the Bush administration of Bush the father very wisely decided not to go for 100% total victory. Uh, his son did try for, well, achieve briefly total victory in Iraq and look where it got us, right? Yeah, I suppose if, if that's what that can be called. Um... In any popular support that may have existed for this war at one point near the beginning has, has since been exhausted. This is not a popular effort at this stage. And, and Putin, by many accounts, is no longer a popular leader, at least not to the extent he was prior to this. And, and yet, you know, even with all that, it's difficult 
given the grasp he has had on leadership there for so long now to even conceive of what a transition of power would look like. So I'm curious, uh, you know, what, what your take would be, what is the future of Russian leadership if Putin is not a part of that picture? Or I, I guess I should also ask, is it your belief that, that Putin will manage to somehow weather this? Well, I mean, something that is now working in Putin's favor is the fact that while you're absolutely right, um, belief in the war and faith in Putin in Russia has, has gone down terrifically, uh, there is still a really strong will in Russia to, to defend Crimea um, and, uh, and the eastern Donbass. And if, you know, the, the more those look to be endangered, you, you will, I think, see a patriotic rally in Russia behind what would then be seen as a defensive war you know, and not in favor of, of more offensives, but in favor of basically hanging on to what what remains. Um, as far as the possible fall of Putin is concerned, well, uh, there are two ways it, it, it could happen. One is that it, it wouldn't have the appearance of a coup, even if it had actually occurred under some sort of pressure from within the regime. It, it is simply that Putin will go on television, as Yeltsin did when he appointed Putin in 1999, uh, and say, I have decided not to um, stand for re-election uh, in 2024. Um, here is my you know, designated successor. I urge you all to vote for him. Now, we don't know who that successor would be. There's a lot of speculation. But that would be... One way, if Putin reckoned that you know his prestige had just been too badly shattered by what happened in in Ukraine, just as Yeltsin's was too badly shattered by the the economic crisis of 1998. Uh, the other uh, possibility that's been put forward is is that um, there will simply be more and more and more protests. You will have regional governors changing sides and turning against the regime. And I mean, what I have been told by former Russian officers, I know, is that if it comes to the point where Putin, where the police could no longer control the crowds and Putin had to call on the army to restore order, then it would be over for him because the army would not do it. Um, the generals would not dare order their troops to, to fire into Russian crowds, uh, if only because they would be afraid that um, their own necks would be on the line if Putin did fall. Um, and so then I think you could see a fall of the regime. Uh, now, I don't think we are close to that yet, but it will be very interesting to see you know, how Russian, well, what can be shown of Russian public opinion reacts to this latest, you know, Russian disaster in the, in Ukraine. Yeah, even as we have seen unrest accumulate over the last um, nine months now, close to nine months now, um, it it remains it's striking to hear even the even the notion of there being a, a different man at the helm there in, in Russia. It's hard to imagine, but I, I think that's as good a place as any to leave it. So let me thank you again, um, Anatole, for, for 
joining us uh, and, and lending us your expertise on this. I, I certainly learned a great deal and I, I know our listeners will too. So thank you. Thank, thank you so much. It was a pleasure. Hey, this is Ricky. You've reached The Lost Debate. If you have some feedback for us, leave it after the tone. Two voicemails from our lovely listeners. I'll start with Nisha. Uh, Nisha coming at us from Tennessee. Let's hear from her. Hi, my name is Nisha. Uh, I'm calling from Tennessee, and I am Indian American. Uh, I also come from a place of privilege, and I am not super educated about this, but I did just listen to your episode about affirmative action, and I am in a similar position as, oh man, I totally forgot his name, but the other Indian co-host of the show, I am so sorry, I'm new to the show, if you can't tell, but I was curious, is there a reason that we haven't considered facing affirmative action on, like, parent income instead of by race itself? Because there are so many nuances, and like he was saying at the end of that episode, you would not want to use affirmative action on people like the Obamas, their daughters, you know. It's for people who actually come from a place of lack of privilege. And there is privilege that comes with money. There's clearly a lot of problems that come with race, obviously. Like, But why is an affirmative action just based on parental income? That's the real issue that I feel like is being stemmed from all these programs, is that we're trying to lift people who don't have privilege. And money is really the true source of this issue. I would love to see if there's anything being done about that. Why wouldn't we just change affirmative action to, instead of being race-based, being income-based? All right. Thank you. Well, first of all, Nisha, shame on you as an Indian woman not remembering my name. But in all seriousness, I, I really love what you had to say, both about the show and you know, getting ready for Thanksgiving, but also about affirmative action. I've been thinking about this a lot, and I totally agree with you. I think that the economic-based, if we want to call it affirmative action, is going to be the next step that a lot of these universities take. And I think this dovetails with the segment we did with o where we talked about Obama's recent remarks on Pod Save America, where Obama said we need to be talking more about class than race. And obviously, economics and race are correlated. And I think it's a, it's a fairer and more politically persuasive way to go about this set of solutions. And we have one more voicemail to listen to from Sarah from the suburbs of Chicago. Hi, guys. My name is Sarah. I'm a new listener to your podcast, and I've quickly become a huge fan. Um, I'm just mentioning this because I felt pretty lost on where to get my news in the last several years, so I do love to stay informed. So the lost debate is exactly what I need. Also wanted to say I appreciate the tremendous thought and due diligence and careful consideration you put into the stories that you report. So thank you. I did want to highlight a perspective that I didn't hear you mention in your discussion about remote work during the pandemic. I have a notion that a large contributor to the minimal productive daily work hours reported on the blind blog is the fact that so many schools and daycares were shut down. So parents had to juggle their kids while trying to work during the pandemic, and that definitely cut my work hours in half. Um, I split the time with my husband. And that went on for like six months. So I realized I'm, I'm definitely defending myself a bit here, but I also wanted to highlight that every person is a bit different. But as a remote worker, um, I'm a recruiter for Meta. I definitely maxed out my work hours with cutting out the commute and my 
general inclination to chit-chat nonstop when I'm in the office. Um, also, anyways, I just really appreciate you guys, and I feel a lot more confident going into Thanksgiving dinner discussions with your help, so thanks again. Well, Sarah, thank you so much. This is a great point, and I actually tried to find some more data from that particular post to see if they had disaggregated it by parents, and they didn't. So if you can find info on this, because it seems like you're somewhat involved in this issue, uh, not just as a parent, but as somebody who supports companies, if you can find some issue that disaggregates some of those trends where people are working less, whether they're parents or not, I would love to see it, because I think this is a great question that I just couldn't find an answer to this morning. Well, that's all that we have for today. And just one more reminder that our voicemail phone number is 321-200-0570. Give us a call. We'll respond when we're back after Thanksgiving. But that's all that we have for today. Just a reminder to like, subscribe, give us a like on YouTube, give us a rating on your podcast platform, and we'll be back to you shortly. Lost Debate is the flagship show of the Lost Debate Network. Our executive producer is Michael Hendricks, research support by Joe Garvey and Ariane Misra, studio support and video editing by Moyo Adeolu, editing and sound design by Joe Engelbrecht and Monica Espediak.